Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. Today is Friday the 15th of January. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Michael, how are you? I'm not too bad at all, Gary. How are you? I am good. I understand you want to take a victory lap. Well, you know, uh, I think we should at this stage. We don't want to be too premature about it. We're going to be there. We're going to have our stick in the hand, ready to to both poke and beat and cajole. But praise where praise is due also. But we have to take something. Things in the last few days, when it comes to the old vaccination situation in Ireland and in Europe, things are looking up. And I think that uh, no, I'm willing to I'm willing to give some of the credit, Gary, to Der Spiegel. I think that Der Spiegel's role in breaking the story across Germany and creating enormous amounts of political flack in France, Italy, Germany, and the Netherlands maybe has had something to do with the changed energy that we're now seeing across national governments in Europe and indeed in the in the Commission itself, as regards. The procurement and the uh, rollout of vaccinations. I'm willing to say that Der Spiegel had some role in that. Politico also that broke a series of stories after the Der Spiegel story. But I think we obviously must have played a big part in it ourselves because we've been we've been hammering away at this now for a couple of weeks. And I think we have to take a big trade up here. So what's actually happened that's so positive? Well, a couple of things. <laughs> One of my favourites is we have uh, managed to increase the supply of Pfizer uh, vaccines overnight by around 16 or 17 percent because they have now decided that instead of getting five vaccines out of a vial we can get six vaccines. I thought the European Medicines Agency had some issue with that being done. There had been an issue with it uh, but when a number of doctors in a number of different countries kept saying well you know what we're, there's a lot there's a lot, there's a lot left in it you know when we've done the when we've done the the alchemy that we do before we make up the, the vaccines individually and then I think they, as far as they, they applied, they to talk to Pfizer and Pfizer said, yeah, no, yeah, you can, you can, you can do that. So now we can get six where once there was five. The, uh, we are now, look, they were now looking at, there's been an extra curement of the Pfizer vaccines. We are in line to get 3.3 million extra doses. There was a rather, I couldn't find it, Gary, and I looked, so maybe I dreamt it or maybe it disappeared since. It was rather an odd announcement, which seemed to come from an official source on Twitter, saying that we were getting another 2 million doses. And as somebody pointed out, to the, it said it made no reference at all to the EU. That has been since superseded. Anyway, we, uh, in the new rollout, we're going to get 3.3 million. AstraZeneca, which not that long ago wasn't looking like it was going to get approval that quickly, ha- has uh, submitted and is expected to get EMA approval, uh, lic- conditional licensing, sort of the end of this month. Moderna has been approved. The minister signed, I think, on the 13th. He signed the order so that Moderna could be used. Uh, the news from the Johnson Johnson is good. And I think we may have referenced the fact that CureVac is also looking uh, like it's going to be early. CureVac is just, this is for listeners that might be interested in the kind of thing. For those people, there are some people who have ethical concerns about vaccines. Uh, people who are concerned about the use of uh, aborted uh, fetal cell lines, either in the production of the vaccines or in trials. Now, in the mRNA, mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, there is there are no fetal cell lines uh, used in the production of the vaccine at all. However, in some of the trialing the testing, they did use some of the fetal cell lines. These are cell lines which go back to 1973. 
Um, in the more standard ones, like say the Johnson and Johnson, in the AstraZeneca, there may have been. However, CureVac. Uh, I was talking to somebody from the Charlotte Lozier Institute in the United States, and she was saying that their research shows that so far as they can see, CureVac does not use any fetal cell lines, aborted fetal cell lines, in either its in its production or at any stage during its trialing. So, if people are interested who have ethical concerns, they could maybe look into the issue regarding accessing a CureVac uh, vaccine rather than an, any others. So, we're also looking at the numbers, Gary, have this in comparison to where we were when we started, have shot up. Now, it was reported, I think, the Independent said that we are now second in Europe. Um, according to the, they gave a figure for Italy, which according to the world in data is slightly below it. So we are actually behind Denmark and Italy still. But uh, some countries in Europe seem to be just basically not doing it at all, just seem to be stuck. Why we have gone so quickly? And whether or not we will continue to move quite so quickly is a question. And that's why we need to keep on these on this on the subject. We would hope that our friends in the mainstream media will will help us out there. Yeah, we uh, we saw a substantial improvement over uh now I will say this. The HSE is saying that they met their target last week and that they had nearly forty thousand uh, uh vaccines delivered. I would be interested if they mean they met the original target, which was 35,000 people done that week, or the reviewed target, which was 35,000 overall. Because if you remember, we'd done 4,000, I think 300 the week before. And I would be curious to see what the exact number of nearly 40,000 is. Because if it's under 39,300 or so, then we didn't actually hit the 35,000 target. But that's nitpicking. That's, yeah. if anything, we were very close to it. It's just an annoyance I am having with the level of information available to us. The HSE has said, well, Stephen Donnelly has said, from the end of this month, daily vaccine numbers will be uploaded. Now, I don't know what the lag will be in that. It could be a week or so. They've now added it to the COVID-19 um, dashboard. However, what they've added is basically just as vaccinations, Total number given, click here for more information. And when you click, it just says vaccine numbers are provided by the HSE and updated regularly, which is not further information, barely information at all. But it was, um, it has gone substantially better than expected. Now, my only concern there is when you look at the numbers, nearly all of it, about uh, 70,000 of the 77,000 come from hospitals and they're not patients their workers. It seems like there is an element of low-hanging fruit about this. Yeah, so we're getting, we've gotten 10 times more hospital workers vaccinated than people in nursing homes, even though people in nursing homes were meant to be the first tier of people to receive this care. So instead went to hospital workers. We've got a lot of those, and yes, they were important because they can become ill, and then by withdrawing labour, then the health service gets closer to collapse. But they're not going to drive down their debt rates because a lot of these people are quite young. Um, but also, they're kind of the low-hanging fruit. It'll be when it goes into the actual public. That's when I'd be interested to see what happens here. But even then, there are reasons to be uh, more optimistic than we have been. We, it, it, all of the communications now are, are talking about rolling out a seven-day vaccination process. And 
it is my, it, I'm sorry, but it's still my strong sense from the, the documents that we saw that were sent out, for example, earlier on to the to the care homes and, and other communications from the HSE, that the original plan had been a nine to five, a five day to week job. No, it absolutely was. And then people got pissed off and then they changed. Which is good. And we are happy. And that's, that's a good thing. And we are happy that that has happened. So if we're talking about a seven day a week uh, process, that's a good thing. Other things, they're now in negotiations and have concluded negotiations with private hospitals and in other spaces to create mass vaccination centres. We want, might re- just return to that subject uh, quickly later on, Gary, about the beacon, for example. That's an interesting side story. Um, another issue is, I mean, the fact that AstraZeneca is coming on board and we ordered quite a lot of AstraZeneca is not just important because it was the suspicion of people that, well, ourselves and others uh, who are more closely connected to the actual uh, functioning of this thing than we are, that one of the reasons why the initial rollout was looking, at the beginning was looking rather anemic was because simply the lack of supply. There was a concern that if they if they went hammers and songs at it, then they could reach a point where they just didn't have any supply. And it would look worse to start and then have to stop and say, well, well we're waiting for more. Uh, the AstraZeneca is easier to, is easier to keep. But also, Pfizer, the Pfizer vaccine reports, uh, I, I, the, the phrase is anaphylactic events in one case in every 100,000, which is why if you receive that vaccine, the first, you have to stay for 15 minutes. So that if you become unwell, you will, if you're going to have a reaction, it'll happen in the first 15 minutes afterwards. So you have to stay there so that you can be treated. I mean, anaphylaxis is bad, but it's treatable. So it's not any, it's not a reason why, unless there are specific other morbidities that you have that would be problematic. It's not a reason to avoid it. Also, it's worth considering, for example, that penicillin produces anaphylaxis in one case in every 5,000. And yet nobody's saying we should stop taking penicillin. I mean, these are still very rare cases. However, in the Astros, case of AstraZeneca, it doesn't, it, we don't have any, in the trial information, there isn't a report of any serious allergic side effects. So it could be, you don't have this hanging around 15 minute thing. It can be done more quickly. Johnson Johnson, if and when it hits, is a single shot. So that also makes the thing more quickly. So both the HSE is moving more quickly. It's getting better. It has, Shall we say it has responded to a, a sense of what the fuck? Are you serious? No, 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 that is not acceptable. And has seems to have gained a sense that we need to do this a bit more quickly. The European Commission has responded to, well, to the fact that you had people like the Danes and the French and the, and the Germans and the Cypriots and probably others going out and just doing it themselves. And rather than having to look like the hind tit, the, or so the fish on the bicycle, they have, they've had to act and they've gotten more vaccines in, which is good. A lot of things are coming together. So we're now looking far, far better than we were. But we shall keep a watching brief on the story, see how it goes. Anybody who's interested, by the way, there is, a, there is an app now available where you can go online and you can put in your personal details and it will give you an idea when you could ex- expect on the basis now, this is on the basis of the HXE projections of the number of uh, vaccinations that are going to take place every day, that uh, when you when you can be expected to get 
your uh, vaccination. Yeah, I, I, I did have a look at that. And I think it told me it would take me two and a half years to be vaccinated. But I would say this, that that is based on the HSEs, what they've released. However, what they've released, I remember we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago on the show, Michael. Like, the graphs don't even have numbers. Like, they're very clearly, we don't know what's happening. No, you got two and a half years. What you might you might do is go back again because I know somebody said to me that they got uh, they got four and a half years. Well, I did their numbers again today, and they got the eleventh of July this year, which is a which is quite a bit of an improvement. Yeah. So now more numbers are starting to come out, and it, I mean it's totally changing. I think the issue there is you know, why were these numbers not known before? Because some of it was up in the air because you were waiting for EMA uh, approval and things like that. But others of it uh, were known. And I think until then, we will remain the uh, slightly disappointed Asian father to the aspirational (laughs) student of the Irish government. It's not good enough to be the second best in Europe. We've got to be the best in Europe. And then when we overtake the Danes, why not Britain? Why not Britain? Why not Britain? Why not not be better than our colonial masters? Uh, Why not? I was. I mentioned the, the the beacon. There has been a bit of a brouhaha, Gary. Yeah, there was a, about a bit of a brouhaha people. that was announced and then immediately seemed to answer itself because the beacon is a private hospital and apparently there is some concern inside the HSE that staff at uh, this particular private hospital were vaccinated ahead of public healthcare workers, given that it had refused to sign a deal to give the HSE extra beds. But the Beacon Hospital is going to be used as a mass vaccination centre. So that to me would answer the question of why were workers in the Beacon vaccinated? Probably because of the mass vaccination centre they plan to run there. You kind of feel that head, that comes under the, under the heading of asked and answered. And yet, but I, the, uh, Paul Reed, the, the HSE chief, chief executive, he came out and said he was concerned about the deal. Um, the problem was, he came out and he said that um, it's a concern of his that this would happen when we don't have an agreement with the Beacon Hospital, a signed agreement. But by the time he made that comment, the HSE had already sent out a press release announcing that they had a deal with the Beacon. <laughs> and, yeah. and that they were truly grateful, is the terminology used, for the Beacon's assistance. And you're sort of going, you're the CEO of the HSE. Did no one tell you that? Because think about it, like for that to be sent out, that would be sent out by their press department. But the deal would have to be signed off on. So what is happening if a deal like that can be signed off on and the public can be notified, but the CEO of the organization doesn't know it's happened? Yeah, it does give the impression that the the right hand knows not what the left hand does. So, I, I don't know. I've, I've, it's been brought up in the doll. It's all of the standard people. But, I mean, you've got your Adon or Reardon types. But again, they're, they're asking all these questions. And it all seems to just come back to the same answer. Because it's going to be a mass vaccination centre. Which I think makes quite a lot of sense. I don't see the stumbling block here. Why are you doing this? Because it's immensely helpful to us. And we can't have them getting sick. Yeah, one of the concerns, and this has been talked about in Britain, where they're in, and the vaccinations of the frontline workers there, is because they specifically address the concern that 
vaccination centers could actually become super spreaders. Do you know what the do you know what the best part of this, Michael? The best part of it. Yes. When the Beacon Hospital becomes a vaccination centre, do you know who the first people who are going to be using it are? Um, I pass. According to the HSE, frontline healthcare workers in other hospitals. (laughs) In other hospitals. Yeah, so they'll come up and get it done in the Beacon Hospital instead. So there's a sort of, why are we vaccinating these people? who we're going to be using to vaccinate all the other doctors. And you sort of go, I feel the answer to what you're asking is contained within the question itself, although that might be a little bit Zen Cohen-esque. Yeah, on the other hand, you could also say, could they not be vaccinated in their own hospital? I would say that the, the great thing that the Beacon probably has over the HSE's hospitals is a working IT system. Oh, you see, yes, yes. One of those fancy things, those fancy IT systems. Or maybe they just write everything down with the pencil and a piece of paper, which also works. I've got to say, some of the private hospitals are also a lovely day out. Like, have you ever been into the Hermitage? I, I know, I've been, let's see where I've been. I've been to the, I've been to the Black Rock, and I've been to uh, the Beacon, I've been to the, the yeah, and I've been to the Vincent's private, but I've never been to the Hermitage. You no. go, you go to the Hermitage, and it's it's like a hotel foyer, you know, this massive sweeping staircase. But then there's there's the the Hippocratic Oath in gold, oh, and you yeah. can nearly feel yourself just being healed by it as you go in by the wealth. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, like if, if I worked in a HSE hospital, I think I'd be delighted to go spend some time in one of the. Uh, one of the private hospitals, although obviously the Beacon Hospital being owned by Dennis O'Brien is nowhere near as nice the hospitals that were owned by Jimmy Sheen. Of course not, no. Just simply because, I mean, Jimmy's we a like Jimmy. Yeah, we, we like, like Jimmy. Jimmy Sheen. We're, we're a fan. We're a fan. We're even two fans. <laughs> so, moving, uh, moving into it, there was a leak of the mother and uh, baby report. Now, by the way, I hope you've all enjoyed your week of... Uh, newspaper and media coverage of the mother and baby homes again none of these people have read it including the organizations who came out and immediately apologized i saw the archbishop coming out and saying you know terribly sorry all of just this massive list of stuff and sort of going but you haven't read the report why are you apologizing it struck me that a lot of the the religious orders and the archbishop and other members of the of clergy Apologize. And I thought you you know, really you should. They're very. You're too late. You should have apologized before the report was written, if you wanted to be any kind of decency at all. For God's sake, there's no there's no chance that any of these people have actually read the report. And I should say I haven't. I have read the executive summary twice. I I'm making my way through the report, but as I say, it's three thousand pages long. Um, but it's interesting in that the further I get into the report the more I feel that it is actually quite positive towards the religious orders. Like it brings up a lot issues with um with places that were not religious orders. It it's obviously not positive towards them, so it's not saying they're great, but it's not sort of this is all the fault of the um the church. Another thing I was interested to see, and which I didn't expect, is the report explicitly says that some of the witnesses uh Give them incorrect information. It goes on to say that they don't think this was a lie. They think they were trying their best. 
but it was simply information that they could show was incorrect. Couldn't be right. Simply, I mean, stuff like uh, saying you were abused by someone who they could show hadn't started working there until 10 years afterwards. And we know that people, in cases like this, particularly when you're talking at a, at a distance in time, and we're talking like 19, like 1970 is 50 years ago. So anybody who was giving evidence that was, you're talking about a very long time ago. It's not necessarily at all that people are speaking in bad faith, but we know from research that's been done, not in these situations, but say in, for criminal trials, that people's memories and eyewitness accounts are enormously malleable. Even recent events, people's capacity to accurately describe what they saw and the chronology, that's also important. The chronology and when things happened is not great. What happens to you after in life will shape, and the other narratives that you encounter will shape your memory as well. Memory is a weird thing. Uh, but we also live in an age, uh, understandably, for some things, where we, we, we put enormous value on, shall we say, the lived experience and the personal testimony of people. And nobody wants to impute anything to these people but you you i mean i try i suppose i would say it has already been my experience when i've talked about a couple of things that i've seen in the report and i've gone to the point of checking out the the number in the report right not the, the report is i would say nowhere near reading the report but a couple of points in it and i'd say well that that i don't think is what they they would support this and people say well i heard somebody say and that's it that's the discussion is over. And you can say, well, this is a report that took a long time and it's, you know, it seems to be done pretty well. No, they heard out of the mouth of a person a different perspective, and that is the perspective that we give the most credence to. I did see, um, I saw one of the TDs, uh, Catherine Connolly, who, Galway, is it? I think, yes, that sounds right. She came up and she, was, she said that... Um, the report lacked consistency. The writing was unprofessional. Their con their conclusions were incomprehensible. Uh, they should have done more stuff on the stories of survivors, and that hasn't been my my uh, my sense of the report. All it is, in fact, far more fair than I thought it would be, which I think may be partially why people are attacking it. But again, I don't think she read it. She may have read part of it. Doesn't she read all of it? Well, when would they? When would the TDs have received a copy? Unless she was uninvolved with the actual production of the of it, not until very recently. Yeah, I mean, it is as you say, the guts of three thousand pages. It's going to take a long time, not just to read it, but if certainly if you're going to read it with care, that's going to take time. You you can't do that in a couple of days. So I mean, so far, I actually think it is. Um, it has been quite. Uh, quite good for the religious orders but I, I don't think that matters because I said barely anyone is going to read this everyone has come out with their takes already despite the fact that they themselves have very clearly not read it and it's not really going to change anything I just the only reason I bring it up is that I think there is something there in the fact that there is so much media attention on it and we're talking about it and we haven't read it but the difference is we're telling you we haven't read it or we're yes. telling you we have read these sections there's other sections that could be incredibly destructive to religious organizations. I'm interested in the adoption section particularly to see what yes. comes up there. But you're getting all of this 
like this wall of information from the media on this. And they don't know what they're talking about. They can't know because it is simply too dense for them to have gotten through it, even at this stage. I mean, I threw the um, the report length into one of those, how long would this take to read? And it was something like 55 hours at an average speed, even if you're a very fast reader. And journalists are not unbusy people. So none of them are taking 30 hours out of their week to read this, start to finish, so they can come back and go, this is exactly what happened. But what I thought was interesting is, when the report was launched, one of the Irish Times reporters decided to go onto Gripped and take a screenshot of it in the Liberal and make a bit of a snide comment about uh, how we weren't covering it. I think the implication was that, or the insinuation was that, Gripped being more conservative wasn't going to cover anything that could be negative to the church. But what I found interesting is that there was a leak in the Sunday Independent and that caused a bit of a furor. And the Taoiseach comment on it, Minister uh, Roderick O'Gorman came out and commented on it. There were calls for it to be a criminal investigation. But now some of the survivors group have come out and said there was a second leak. Because it turns out that Roderick O'Gorman himself gave the report to certain journalists and certain media organisations at 8am on the morning uh, when it was meant to come out, I think, at 3. Yes. And they are saying that is a leak. It doesn't seem, was this authorised? You just gave this to media organisations. How is this different from the Sunday Independent getting it? And I think also the question there is, did you give it to the Sunday Independent? Because interesting thing, if you get given something as a journalist and someone says there's an embargo on that, which is to say you can't report it until a certain time, embargoes are not binding. There's no force behind them. So the second O'Gorman gave that to the papers, any paper could have published it, and none of them would have been in any legal trouble. Now, they probably wouldn't because they want to maintain their relationship with them. But there have been situations where major papers like the Irish Times and the Independent will break an embargo. But this is the interesting thing. We can't tell what uh, medias and what journalists were given this report. However, I can tell you that one of them was the Irish Times. And it's for this reason. Because in that little furor in Twitter, I made the point that we hadn't published anything on it because we were reading it. But I congratulated the Irish Times in being able to put forward an editorial about how it showed Ireland's culture of shame and silence within a couple of hours of it being published. And that Irish Times journalist was kind enough to respond below me saying, it's been available since 8am under embargo, kid. (laughs) I wonder what his editor thinks of that revelation to the uh, gripped media and to the public. Yeah, I, I mean, I am tempted to... Uh, sorry, he called me son, not kid, which is slightly less condescending. Oh, I don't know. I think it's more condescending, but there you go. But I am I am tempted to write up Irish Times journalist admit Irish Times was leaked report. <laughs> yeah. But I won't, because that would be incredibly petty, although very funny. To be fair to the Irish Times, I, I did want to say that Pat Leahy or Pat Lahey, I don't know how he pronounces it, uh, wrote a, a, an article which actually I thought was a, a very fair-minded and accurate representation analysis of the summary report and was pretty... It's a, it's, a, it's a strong piece, but 
indicative of le- where the report seemed to be most intent on laying the majority of blame for what had gone on. And I thought it was it was a good piece of journalism, uh, which came from the Irish Times. So I, I just wanted to say that, to, to be fair to the Irish Times. Pat, I actually, I'd have a lot of time for uh, Pat Leahy and his stuff. And he's, he is generally fair, even when I don't agree with him. Um, and one important thing about the report that I haven't really heard talked about is that the report was finished in October. Was it really? I thought it was, I didn't realize it was that early. No, 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 no. The government got the report in October. And it took them this long to release it, and then they're complaining about leaks, and you're sort of going, you've had it for months. Absolute months. It also makes the fact that they didn't print off copies and send them to the uh, to the groups involved in this look a little bit worse. Yeah, you think that if they wanted that, they could have got a hard copy out to people. I mean, it's, it's an expense, but it's not like this was inexpensive to do. But uh, as I said, I, I'm still just reading through it, and it, it is a fascinating document there's a ton of stuff in it that is actually just legitimately really interesting uh, uh, the last my the last report i act- i read in toto was the macalise report of the magdalen laundries and after which i vowed i would never read another report in this entirety again because it, it well principally because it just felt like an utterly fruitless exercise that anybody i had a conversation with about the subject of the laundries if i re- referred to something in the uh the report, they would either just blank it and just ignore it completely because they'd seen a film, or else they would just say, oh, well, of course, everybody knows the McAleese report was just a whitewash. This I will read. I will actually get around to reading because if nothing else, just from the the bits and pieces I've seen glancing through the report and from the executive summary, it, I suspect, in, if nothing else, it is a fascinating piece of social history. But that's one of the things I've, I've really liked about it. it. It doesn't just focus on the institutions. It's very keen to contextualize them and to sort of go and this was what ireland was like at the time and this was the region around it and these were the events that led to it and this is this is the overarching context it's um it should be in because a lot of reports can be very uh, myopic and just mm-hmm. focus purely on it but this actually seems just very well done just as a technical piece i think it's going to be a, a very interesting resource I, I imagine that there will be quite a number of ma Theses and even the odd PhD will be done on the back of this. But really, I just wanted to bring it up mostly because I enjoy the fun little story about the Irish Times. Yes. Which, if uh, may inadvertently be a bit of a problem for them later on. But mostly because I'm hearing a lot of like, there's a lot of talk on this and a lot of chatter. And, and these people haven't read it. They don't know what they're talking about. They at best have read sections, but I would suspect with a lot of them, they haven't read anything. They knew what they were going to say anyway. You pick a page that you think looks useful based on the chapter heading. You find a quote, you put it in so it looks like you've read it. But it's simply not humanly possible for these people to have read the report. And anyone who starts talking to you about it and doesn't explain the limitations of what they've read is effectively trying to mislead you. Yeah, it's a bit of a con job. Not like us. I mean, we're absolutely trustworthy here. Always. Always and everywhere. Mm -hmm. In everything. God, that's that would be terrifying were it true. <laughs> we should not as, be the ethical high bar. As 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 the lady that my mother used to enjoy used to always say say to Well Patty, if I'm telling you a lie, I was told a lie. And my mother would comment very often afterwards, God, that woman is told a lot of lies. I did. Did you see uh, Alan Kelly in the doll? Yeah, that was a 
bit premature. Well, so Al- Alan Kelly comes out and says that um, if the religious orders don't agree to give contributions, that he will draft a bill to uh, take that. Explicitly said to take their assets, and you're sort of going. You haven't read it, have you? I, I've, unless he got some very early access to it, he couldn't have. So we've got people coming out and just going, well, just take their property. You sort of go, but for, for what, though? What part of the report do you feel justifies this? Considering that parts of the report do say that, uh, and I, as I said, it might be further on, they might say, well, these particular institutions did make money. But it says that in a lot of cases, they just there was no profit. And I saw some of the victims groups saying, coming out and saying that you know, the survivors had to be given a share of the profits. But the report seems to say there are no profits. No one made money on this. Uh, in, in, in the summary, I mean, it, it, it says on more than one occasion when they're talking about incomes and expenditures and salaries that were paid to or capitation grants that were given uh, to places that were being run by religious orders, they say, however, it is clear that expenditure exceeded income. These were, I mean, somebody said to me, oh, they were loss-making. Now, I don't, I don't imagine the religious orders see it in that context of loss-making. They're not running a business. But precisely, I suppose that is the point. They weren't running a business. But there was a widespread belief that that is, in fact, what they were doing. There's, actually, there's an interesting point. One they make, uh, I think it's about uh, the, the house in Dunboyne. I mean, this, this is a, just a very small point, but it makes the point that uh, the laundry was sent out to a commercial laundry. The Dunboyne was particularly used. It was particularly younger women and women later on, young women and girls who wanted to say an intercircle or junior certain didn't have the support at home to do so. So they could come there. Uh, and it makes the point that they all the, and whereas I've heard regularly said that, that, that they, the girls there had to do the laundry, that they, they made money by making the girls do laundry uh, for various institutions and people. And it, the report actually said in that case, and maybe that's why they actually mentioned that because that was a, uh, something that was going around. Uh, they make the point, uh, the, the, the adoption things I think is going to be very interesting. And I don't suppose this is an exhaustive study on the issue of adoption at, that, at this time and other, there will be more work to be done on that. They, all they say is that they can, they can neither prove nor disprove the belief that uh, money was involved in placing children in adoption in America. They do say, however, which is interesting, that there was a direction from the director of the Mercy Order in Ireland to the home saying that they must not accept donations from anybody either personally or towards the running of the homes or the upkeep of the homes from people who are involved in adoptions in the United States, which is suggestive on bo- in both directions, if you like. I mean, there was a um, there was an article in the Irish Independent by Colette Brown. It was about Mary Lou Macdonald. And it said it was it was titled Mary Lou Macdonald's Misstep Undermines Her Support of Abuse Victims in the Doll. Here's the subheading, Michael. The Sinn Fein uh-huh. leader's expression of admiration for film director Woody Allen was a baffling admission 
by a usually competent and articulate politician. Uh, okay, give me a second. Hold on, give me a second there. Woody Allen... So, Mary Lou MacDonald likes Woody Allen. She went on to Matt Cooper's show. Okay, obviously, yeah, well, sorry. Yes, I can see that was a grave error of judgment and Colette Brown was wrong. She said that she had some concerns about the idea of cancel culture and... Um, she talked about how much she liked the work of Woody Allen, which she said stands on its own two feet. I wonder if she liked the early stuff or the later stuff. I don't know. I, Woody Allen is a bit of a weird one, even in this area. Because for those who don't know, Woody Allen was accused of um, molesting... Uh, what was the daughter's name? Uh, Song Yi? No, 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 no. So Woody Allen married the adopted daughter of his ex-wife. Well, their adopted daughter wasn't it? Was it which he's, what, what? Mia Farrow was his ex-wife. I think technically it was Mia Farrow's adopted daughter from him talking about it. But he was also accused of um, molesting one of Mia Farrow's children. And they were never substantiated. And he's denied them strenuously. But wasn't there a court case? There was some kind of an investigation. I can remember there was definitely some kind of investigation. So there was, sir. There there was an investigation, but he wasn't. Uh, he wasn't even charged at the end of it. Well, I put it this way, Gary. He's not Roman Polanski. Well, that was exactly who I was thinking of when it came out, because Roman Polanski is still beloved of everyone. But Roman Polanski did drug and rape a girl, and there was never any doubt about that. That just happened. And that, and he. I mean, this is why he leaves the United States and doesn't go back. There is. I believe still, is there still an active uh, warrant out for Roman? Every now and then, a country will kind of make moves to, uh, I think Switzerland at some point did arrest him. So he's he still gets into trouble, but he is critically lauded, he is beloved, everyone loves to be in his films. Woody Allen, however, the last couple of years, his name has kind of gone to, um, to dirt. The Independent does not like Sinn Féin. I get that. There are lots of reasons not to like Sinn Féin, but to go... Mary Lou MacDonald said she enjoys the work of Woody Allen. Therefore, she does not support abuse victims. Is, I think, on the face of it, insane. And then, I mean, they had Colette Brown, they had another piece on Sinn Féin leader criticised for her admiration of disgraced Hollywood duo and rebuke of cancel culture. Then they had, I think, another one on how she... Disgraced to top Hollywood what? Oh, she had also talked about Kevin Spacey. Oh, Oh, duo. For a second there. Oh, okay, no, doesn't matter. Two people, yes. I mean, then The Independent carried uh, another article on how Ivana Bacic had <laughs> had not liked the comments. And who cares? I mean, Ivana Bacic doesn't care what you think about whether or not she should be an elected politician. She's going to be one regardless. So you shouldn't care about what she says about other things. Let alone what your opinion might be of Woody Allen. Yeah, it's it's always a disappointing. I always find this anyway. It's a very small petty thing. I'm always disappointed when people I don't like like the artists that I do like. It's it's always a bit of a worry for me. So I, I like Woody Allen, particularly the funny stuff, and I would be disappointed to discover that Ivana Bacic was a a big fan. It kind of annoyed me when I well I don't know annoyed, but when I discovered, for example, that Jerry Adams, you know, apparently loves P.G. Woodhouse. I can actually see that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I suppose, yeah. No, I, I, I can see it, yeah. But uh, no, Ivana Bacic came out and said she was very surprised by the remarks. And I bet Ivana Bacic doesn't like P.G. Wood. I said to myself, she can't possibly have said that, but she did. The audacity, <laughs> Michael, to say such a thing within a time frame where the independent could tangentially link it to something else. 
And uh, and then Patrick complains about cancel culture and how the Me Too movement has been phenomenal and cancel culture is used by people to disparage those who are trying to progressively change society. Well, actually, there is no such thing as cancel culture, Gary. It's all an invention of the right. One day, three articles in The Independent attacking Mary Lou McDonnell for saying she liked Woody Allen. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I, I see. I, I see what you're. I see it. Yeah, I get you don't like Sinn Fein. That's perfectly fine. I don't agree with their policies, but like you're kind of taking the piss. Yeah, and also it, like it dilutes us any serious criticism that comes next. Because within the next like couple of weeks, if they say anything, you're like yeah, but like you wrote a spew of articles about her not or about her liking Woody Allen. You didn't even ask her which Woody Allen work she particularly liked. True, yeah. I... You should have asked her, like, does she like um, the producers? And then accused her of anti-Semitism. Blazing Saddles? Said she's a racist. Well, the, again, Mel Brooks films. Two, two Mel Brooks films there. Although, um, a bit like both Jewish. Maybe it's a... It's, a, it's also, I wonder what she, her feeling is about Westerns. Or Dirty Harry. <laughs> Sorry, I just amused myself the idea that uh, that uh, that um, uh, herself might be a big fan of the Dirty Harry series because I I just it just strikes me that if you are going to think of a film that Ivana Bacic would not like, it's surely Dirty Harry. Can you imagine a film? more likely to be offensive to Vanna than, than Dirty Harry. It's basically a fascist fantasy. Although there is Dirty Harry 2, which is less a fascist fantasy because all those police officers get shot. Is that is there one? Is that Dirty Harry 2 Magnum Force? Is that it? I'm sure Magnum comes into one of those three of them. I can't, I, I'm thinking of the one with the, with the cops who are actually vigilantes. Yes, yes. That was a weird one, actually. They're all actually, when you see them now, they're all a little bit 70s and a little bit odd. Do you know the other thing I really enjoyed about the Mary Lou thing? That every article was written by a different person as well. Oh, yeah. So you got your news piece in, you got your political correspondent in, and then you have your Colette Brown opinion piece. The trifecta. Oh, yeah. <laughs> slow news day. You have to say it must be a slow day in Paris. I've, I've never, I, I, I've never met Mary Lou. I've never actually really thought about what she's like as a person, because I don't really care what politicians are like as people, and I don't really care if I like them or not ridiculous and now if she comes out and doesn't apologize i'm gonna to have to like her more yeah and she's probably not going to apologize because one it's Sinn Féin and they don't care because it's the independent two well, why, why, should, why she? should she like i i don't it's it's clear there's a political reason for this but it's so fucking stupid that it just makes me dislike the independent more it is it is literally tangential to life, insofar as a tangent touches one point and only one point on the circumference of the circle, it is that fine a connection to anything in the world. It is one level above. How could you say that on the eve of the new moon, a date where historically, <laughs> in ancient Babylonian times, they had the following festival dedicated to women's liberation? How could you say such a thing? Did you not have that in your mind when you said it? <laughs> or did you discover that the kind of person has the wrong kind of dog? I don't know. It's it's not news. I just found a fake... Well, apparently it is news because it's a story. They they decided to cover it. It's just kind of faintly ridiculous. There was one thing I just... Just to close up on. And it's a new law that we've talked about it before, Fine Gael, where 
talking about putting it in. And um, basically, the government, I was going to say Fine Gael, but the government have decided they want to put in a, a new law to give you the right to request remote working, which you may have presumed was a right you had already in that presumably you can talk to the people who employ you or management and ask for things. <laughs> yeah, you do have to, you do wonder, don't you? What what precisely was the scenario that was in the mind of somebody of a of a workplace where there was where people signed on to work under the strict contractual understanding they were never allowed to ask their superiors anything. There is no talking here, and there's a moat between the people what work there and the people what manage it. And you're not allowed to go over the moat. You can't cross the drawbridge. It's a very strange idea of what of, of a working place that you don't already have the right to go and say, by the way, boss, but we need legislation, Gary, because if we didn't have legislation, we wouldn't have legislators. Now, it is possible that they've based this on a real, on a real environment. And I think I have found the environment they've based it on, Michael. Yes. Tchaikovsky. When Tchaikovsky was around, he had a patron called Von Meck. Now, Von Meck was a businesswoman. Her husband had been involved in the railways. But she supported uh, Tchaikovsky for years on the understanding that he would never talk to her. <laughs> now, I believe that the Irish see, government that's fantastic. has studied this historical undertaking and has assumed that that is how business works. You know... You spend your life thinking that Tchaikovsky was as odd as two left feet, and only to discover that his patron was even fucking odder than Tchaikovsky was. Yeah, apparently at the time, their relationship was weird. Like, people were just like, so you keep writing to each other, like, re like a lot of letters, but you just don't want to meet in person. And, uh, yeah, then she told uh, Tchaikovsky to burn her letters, and he told her he did, but didn't. Which is the only reason we know about it, really. There you go. I mean, it's odd that they wouldn't meet in the same. I mean, I don't know what the concern was because, famously, Tchaikovsky was was not the kind of man that would have been, shall we say, accused of having an affair with her. Uh, he was not a mar. He was not, as they say, the marrying kind. So I don't know precisely what her concerns may have been, except she may just have been a rich woman who was barking mad. Well, she was very rich. Uh, she was also apparently a bit of a nightmare. But uh, yeah. When you get rich enough, apparently you can just do these things. Yeah, it's one of those irregular verbs, isn't it? Yeah. They they dealt with each other for, I think, 14 years and right. never talked. They apparently once accidentally ran into each other at a park and just walked by each other. <laughs> Fled as quickly as they could in the opposite direction. So apparently she was just, she was a gifted musician herself and she was a deep admirer of him. Uh, and after her husband died, didn't want to meet him. But she gave him a very generous salary. Anybody that puts cannons into the orchestra has to should should get a few extra quid. I mean, these these people were sending like two letters a week for fourteen years and just wouldn't talk to each other. But that's what I think. That's what I think we have based this law on. There is someone in the government who's very interested in Russian classical music of that period. And just assumes that's how employment contracts work. And having never worked outside the public sector, doesn't know that that's... I mean, it's, it's 
perhaps not the norm. I would say, Michael, it does happen occasionally. I suppose. Okay, let's 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 be let's take this, shall we say, a little bit more seriously, maybe than we should. It gives you the right to ask. Does it give you any other rights other than boss? Can I work from home? No. Okay then, boss. So Leo is going to publish, or he may have published earlier, and I just haven't seen it. Ireland's National Remote Work Strategy, which aims to make remote working a permanent option for life. Note again, option. Yeah. Uh, Which it was before, because you don't have to achieve your option for it to be an option. And they say that it's going to put together a legally admissible code of practice. I don't know what that means, other than presumably it's something you can voluntarily agree to. And then if you break it, you can be sued by your employees, which... Strikes me as why would I do that? Unless maybe I was RTE and I just said the unions want to give it to them. But they also say it should have a right to disconnect from work. So a right not to answer phone calls, emails, that sort of stuff. But it, but that's utterly unconnected to remote learning. That's That's a problem just as much for people who work in offices as it is for people who work at home is the fact that people are getting phone calls at the weekend and people get emails after hours and are being expected to to stay connected and to stay online. And there is an issue there that people are, or at least feel that they have to do that. So there there may be there may be discussion that needs to be had about that. And it's a new tech we're dealing with new technologies that are affecting work in a different in ways that we hadn't previously had experience of, and that needs to be sorted out. And negotiations need to we need to have a negotiation i don't mean necessarily legal negotiation but a social negotiation within the workplace and people's expectations need to be clear and i mean the contractual obligations need to be need to be clear that there's nothing that seems like a perfectly reasonable thing yeah i my my issue with this i do have a bit of an issue with it of course other than the fact i think it's silly is that stuff like the the right to disconnect i don't think is the place of the government to regulate that is a case of businesses and owners and employees to come to an understanding on. There doesn't need to be a law on it. And if you're working in an area that has, you know, that gives you, that calls you at 11 p.m. and you don't like it, work somewhere else. Mm. That's that's my general approach to it. And people go, oh, it'd be hard to find another job. Okay, then stop complaining. <laughs> you're all hard, Gary. If you don't like it, don't do it. <laughs> I, I don't think the government needs to get involved in that. We record these podcasts between half 11 and I'd say 2 a.m. in the morning. Most mornings. Sometimes in the mornings, but usually in that time frame. Mm-hmm. I've worked in industries that require you to take calls at any time because things just come up and they need to be dealt with. That's how I've worked pretty much all my life. I've never actually worked a proper nine to five job. They've always just been you work when there's work and you deal with things and it doesn't matter when they come up. You just deal with them. So if you're having dinner, that's great. You can stand up before you do it. I, yeah, I used to work. I did for a few years have a nine-to-five job, uh, which was nine-to-five in the sense that I would start at eight and very often I would finish at half nine. So nine-to-five is a... It's more a platonic idea than a than a reality in this world, so I think. It, it is possible that I just don't understand the plight of office workers because I'm perfectly happy to work this way. It's how I actually like to work. Because it means I can do things later and send them off and get a response. I actually find it really awkward when I deal with people in business or particularly the public sector who, if you send anything after five, will not deal with it to the next morning. You try and deal with 
I tell you, try and deal with Germans on that. You will not get a happy outcome. Germany, they work when they work and then they stop. Since, as you say, the time is the time that it is, we don't have to tell the people, but I can tell you it's not a good time. Maybe we shall, we shall, we shall draw the duvet over the uh, conversation and we shall return on Sunday with our happy Sunday miscellany of all the happy Sunday stories. Why are you trying to keep the time secret? I like to maintain a certain level of mystery, you know, I think it's important. I mean, it's ten past two in the morning. It's actually twelve minutes past two in the morning. It's actually 19 minutes past two in the morning. Oh, really? Yes. Well, we should be back on Sunday, as I say, with our happy Sunday miscellany. So until then, mind yourself, stay indoor and wash your hands. All the best. Bye-bye.